0: Whenever that music plays before the sermon, I feel like I should dance as I'm on my way out here, but I'm not a very good dancer, so I'm not going to do that, all right? Just going to let you all know it's not going to happen, but kind of feels like I should, right? Maybe we should all just kind of get up and groove for a second. Yeah, maybe maybe so. Um, But I like people to show up to church, not leave, before I start preaching. So, we are in the middle of the book of romans this summer and we left off last week in the middle of chapter eight and we're going to pick up this morning right where we left off we were relishing in the beautiful truth that we are children of god by adoption because of the great love of god our father now i want to imagine for a second let's do this together we've been adopted by the king. We were poor, pitiful orphans, right? Spiritually speaking, that's true of all of us. And yet, out of the love and the grace of the king of the universe, we've now been adopted by that king and made his sons and daughters. Now, if that were me uh, in a a real life situation, I'd be thinking, oh, this is great. My dad is now the king. Life is going to be cushy and great. Everything's going to go just fine. He's going to protect me from all the bad stuff that happens in the world because my dad is the king. Now, with that thought in mind, let's continue where we left off last week. Here we are in verse 17 of Romans chapter 8. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. Oh, so far so good, right? This sounds awesome. This is exactly what I was expecting. I'm heirs, he's rich, he's powerful, glory, that sounds really great. But it says, if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his sufferings. What? Where did that come from? What's he talking about here? Well, we know the rest of that story pretty well, too, right? It's told in all kinds of tales across history. The idea that the orphan adopted as the son or daughter is wisely taught by their new loving father to not become a spoiled brat, right? But instead to learn humility through trials and to become uh, a fully formed human being. And so we begin to realize that our king is also a wise father. And so Paul here in Romans chapter 8 is laying out the fact that suffering is part of the package of what it means to be a Jesus follower. In fact, we can't look at Jesus and not be struck by his suffering on the cross for us. It's central to the gospel and who he is. And so we begin to realize that a servant is not above their master, as Jesus puts it. And, if, and Jesus suffered. We know that life will not be free from suffering for us. So this letter, and particularly this portion, is written to people who are or who need to be prepared for suffering. Not ease, not hashtag blessed, right, with great circumstances and comfortable situations. We learn that our faith is not one that uh, hides or or tries to sell you on the idea that life's going to be awesome and easy if you come to Jesus. It doesn't try to sand off the rough edges of the truth and reality of life. Our faith is tremendously comforting, but rarely comfortable. It's not pie in the sky, it's not what you see on TV, health and wealth and all of that. So this letter is written to people whose faith is costing them something, whose faith is a choice and an exchange. And that's going to be, I think, a really great thing to dig into. This morning. In the last couple of sermons, as we looked at the chapters leading up to this uh, moment, we've talked about the fact that in Christ we have victory over sin. We have victory over sin's effects in our lives. We have victory over sin's power in our lives. And now we move to the victory that we also get through our suffering, through the tough parts of. Life. And this is not a theme that you would only find in the Scriptures right at this spot. In fact, it is a recurring theme in the Scriptures. The Apostle Peter writes something similar in his first letter, chapter 4, when he says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory revealed. Here's another instance in which the word suffering is associated with the word glory and that that suffering comes because of or in line with our relationship with Jesus. And so as we say yes to Jesus, we are not shielded from suffering, but instead we are empowered to move through that suffering and in fact we begin to discover there are glorious treasures to be found, even within that suffering. So Christians are weird people, aren't we? Turn to your neighbor and say, I always knew you were a little weird. We are a little weird, right? Because in a a sense, we glory in suffering. Now, not in a masochistic way, like bring it on, I want some more, right? But in a realistic way. Because we, we understand suffering is inevitable. We don't, as Peter says, we are not surprised as if some strange thing were happening to us. Like, the, like Wesley says in Princess Bride, life is pain, princess, right? You could turn to your neighbor and say that too if you want, maybe. <laughs> and when we think that life is, other, is anything other than that or that it shouldn't include that, then we're really engaging in futile, frustrating thinking. Verse 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And this dude suffered. This, he went through more than you and I probably ever will in terms of suffering for his faith. But he's like, that doesn't even compare to what I'm receiving as I'm doing life with Jesus. So suffering as a Christian, as well as simply a human in this fallen world, he says, As you pile all that suffering up, you put it on the scale, it's not going to be even comparable. It's temporary. But the glory that I'm experiencing, the goodness of what it means to follow Jesus, man, that's eternal. Um, that uh, glory that we're talking about, he, in Colossians, he puts it like this. He calls it a mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That tells me as I think about this, when we wear thin, anyone ever feel like you're just wearing thin in life? Wearing thin and what's going on in your life or in the world or both or what it's doing to you or how you're feeling? When you wear thin, when I wear thin, it can be an opportunity for Jesus to show through. That when Rob is wearing thin, then that can go one of two ways, right? I can get really negative, or I could get angry, or I could get bitter, or it could be an opportunity for Rob to wear thin so Jesus can show through. And that's true for all of us. So I encourage you to think about that and let him show through your thin places. Elsewhere, Paul put it like this. This is in his second letter to the Corinthians. I refer to this passage nearly every time I conduct a funeral because I believe it so beautifully captures what we as Christians, how we can see life and and in moments like that, it it says that we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary, here he's, he's saying the same thing we just heard him say in Romans. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that what? Far outweighs them all. Far outweighs them all. There's that scale again. Put all the the nasty stuff, the tough stuff, the suffering, the trials, the troubles, you put all that on the scale and then you put the glory and the goodness of what it means to follow Jesus on the other side of the scale and it's always an easy contest. No matter how much suffering there is, there's more good that can come from it. And so we're we're gonna move through the rest of this chapter today and let Paul paint a picture for us. Three things about how this suffering can yield glory. And the, the treasures that we can mine from it. So let's get started. First thing: eager hope. Eager hope. Verse 19. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's join God's children in glorious freedom from death. And decay now man Paul is really painting a kind of a imaginative cosmic picture here of what happened to creation by meaning the earth the universe all that we see and experience when sin entered the world you kind of got we got to use our divine imagination here and go along with Paul he is personifying nature he's personifying creation And he's letting us know that, look, before sin entered the world, before Adam and Eve, before the first humans decided, you know what, God, Mm, I'm going to go my own way. You gave us this direction. I'm going to go my own direction. That's sin. Before that happened, we can probably not fully comprehend the beauty of this world. It's like a wet blanket was just put on top of creation in Paul's vision here of how it all works. There, there are melodies that we've yet to hear, colors we've yet to see, majesties and beauties as, as beautiful as our creation can be. It's diminished. It's not all that it could be. That's why we have this promise one day later at the, at the end of the Bible of a new heaven and a new earth. New heaven and new earth tells me it's going to replace the old, that there's a lot of new that we can't yet see, and that Paul is just giving us this really expansive vision of what is going on. Creation, he says, is on tiptoe, craning, looking, and has been ever since the fall for who will the children of God be? Who will be the bearers of that light we once had? Who will bring the truth as lies have just taken root across our world? That creation itself, if it were a person, would be craning its neck and waiting and looking with eager hope for something good to come, some redemption to begin and he's saying that that has begun in us as Christians that we are involved in an epic tale in a true drama of infinite scope just imaginatively lays that out there the creation is looking forward with eager hope longing to see all things made new verse 22 he goes on with this thought for we all for we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers, now he's turning to us, we also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. So there's a lot of groaning (laughs) happening here, right? All of creation is groaning. He says we too as believers are groaning because we live in this in-between. Anyone feel that tension between the real and the ideal? right? We are, ours is a faith of great ideals, wonderful, beautiful ideals that we absolutely should, should keep in front of us and be inspired by, and yet we also live in the day-to-day real, and they don't always perfectly match. Is that an understatement, right? So we live in this tension between, between what is and what could be and what can be, and that's what hope is for, right? So there's a lot of groaning, happening here. And th- this reminds me, uh, when, I, when I think about that, every time I read it, I think about my stomach growling, right? I may not groan, but my stomach growls. And in fact, my stomach can growl pretty loud. Tamar can hear it from across the room sometimes. So like, oh, I can tell you're hungry, right? That involuntarily, uh, you know, hunger is there and is expressing itself. And so when when I read about creation groaning, when I read about believers groaning, it begs the question for us, for what are we groaning? For what are we hungry? i got to tell you, and I bet you're a lot like me, I'm hungry to live like Jesus, to learn more and more about what that means. I yearn for revival, first in me, and in everyone that I know, and in this church, and in every church, right? For people, the people of Christ, to rise up more than ever before and find Jesus irresistible. Find injustice intolerable. Find the gospel incredible, right? that we long for, we yearn for, we hunger for this, it growls in us, we groan for it. I crave and I ache for real healing for my brothers and sisters who I know are so often suffering as we all do, whether it's with trauma from past hurt or abuse or it's addiction that has them locked up. I yearn to see genuine community, right? People who are so in love with Jesus that they hear a truth like what we're talking about today and something in them can't help but say, that's for me. I believe that. It excites me. I want to share it with someone else and I want to be around people who were equally excited. To me, that's revival, right? You can think of a lot of terms or a lot of pictures when you think of that word, but it's simply something that was near dead coming back to life. It's simply something that was kind of subdued, getting reanimated once again. And my faith, maybe yours too, can sometimes get a little subdued, it needs reanimated. I crave, I ache that our hearts would be broken for the pain that this world has, that we would see that pain, and our first instinct would be, how can I help, right? That we hear the cries of people, and our empathy takes over, our compassion becomes our compass, and we begin to follow that pain, and we ask Jesus, how can I be your hands, your feet, your mind, your mouth, ready to respond? Man, that's real revival, right? We ache for, we long for that, something more. And I think the whole world, Paul has said it here, all of creation. We may not know how to put words to it. Society, the world may not know how to say it, but we know what they're longing for, what they're yearning for, what they're hungry for. Jesus, amen? Jesus is the answer. Life in Him is what all humans need to thrive. We need hope, right? The world can feel just a little hopeless sometimes, right? Maybe a lot, so. I was reading this week in preparation for a sermon series this uh, fall. Murders dominate our headlines, and rightly so. Murders are, are a tragic thing. But most of us don't realize, and I didn't, that there are two and a half times more suicides in the U.S. than homicides. Two and a half times more. And over the past two decades, suicide rates have risen about 35%, and that's not counting people who die by overdose, because that's more difficult to definitively categorize as a suicide, 35% in the last 20 years. We're doing a series in September about how mental health and spiritual health very much are integrated and go together, and as I'm reading that, I couldn't help but bring that to bear on what we're talking about here, because the world is groaning in eager hope, looking for an answer. And we know, we know, we have it in Jesus. Next verse. So we too wait with eager hope. For the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies. He's promised us. He's talking about a future resurrection. Jesus returns. All our, uh, we all uh, receive new bodies as we live forever with him. We were given this hope when we were saved. And then parenthetically, he makes the observation, if we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But we look forward to something we don't yet have. Uh, we must wait patiently and confidently. In this hope, we are saved," he says. That when when we say yes to Jesus, it's not just on our baptism day, but it's every day that we are with Him and we are living in and looking forward with hope. That we as Christians are people who, yeah, we feel it maybe even more than others because we're so we're so um, aware of just how beautiful the ideal is, what it is to live with Jesus, and how good things can go, and how, how good his love is, and how much wisdom that he can give us. And we want that for more for ourselves, and we want it for everyone, and we want to see the world begin to see that, so maybe we feel even more acutely than most just how in-between we really are. But in that in-betweenness, and in, in, that, in that here but not quite there, we must maintain hope right, and fight against despair. In in this hope, we were saved, because we realize this isn't all there is, and that takes us to our second point, eager hope and powerful help. Verse 26, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. See, in all this suffering, we become acutely aware as, as well of our weaknesses, right, just how fragile we are as human beings. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. What's he talking about? He's saying that when we say yes to Jesus, we've been given the promise that the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so when we come to God, when we want to communicate with God, God is already living in us, so there need not be any static in this signal. We get to talk to Him and commune with Him by the Spirit. And the effectiveness of our prayers is not dependent on the eloquence of our praying. Isn't that good news? It's really good news, right? In fact, we don't even have to have words. Sometimes there's just groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And it's also good news that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, because one of our weaknesses is that we don't know all our weaknesses, right? But I can tell you the Holy Spirit knows every one of my weaknesses, not in a condemning way, but in a caring way. He's got a full diagnosis of all the ways I need strengthened. He knows all the ways that I can get tripped up or get things wrapped around my axle. He knows what I need, and so the Holy Spirit helps me in my weaknesses, And then I can just groan sometimes. I don't have to know exactly what to pray. The spirit in me, the spirit in you can commune with God. I can't tell you how many times my prayers are just Jesus, 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 Jesus. And he knows exactly what I mean. And I don't know what else to say many, many, many times but that's all I need to say. His spirit in me, communing with him, knowing I just need you. I just need you. Verse 28, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. This is a powerful truth. God does not cause all bad or tragic or, of course, sinful circumstances, but he does cause good to come out of them. Can I get an amen? amen. That's right. Now, there's a verb here I want to highlight. It's these two words that we see here in English, work together. In the original language in Greek, it's a word, sunergeo, sunergeo. And when you transliterate it, you quickly see where our word synergy comes from. And that's what's happening here. That's what's being described that I take. Oh, I don't bring much to the table here in this equation, right? Just all my weaknesses. But I bring myself wounded and fragile and confused as we can be on any given day. But I bring myself to God and I participate, I engage in, I surrender to His power, His goodness, His influence in my life, His love and compassion, and there's a synergy that happens. And He is somehow able to take all that stuff, all all the nasty, all the difficult, all the abuse, or all the wounds, or all the pain, or all the poor decisions, or all the sin, He's able to take that and work it, if I'll let Him, synergistically right into something amazing and good, turning good consequences out of adverse circumstances. So think about that word, synergy, because that's exactly what gets to happen when we give our lives to God. That's what I really have come to believe the world is hoping for and searching for and working hard to manufacture in every way it possibly can and always coming up disappointingly short. See, our losses make us lean on Him, which is always good. Our failures push us to learn from Him, also always good. So that whatever has happened to me or whatever I've endured or you have, He can work it for our good. I can testify personally to this truth. Some of you know After 20 years of marriage, I experienced the pain of betrayal and marital unfaithfulness. And it flattened me paper thin. I don't talk about it much because I don't want to, it can sound too much like I'm speaking ill of others. And I really have no desire to do that. But it happened. And God worked it for my good. And I don't just mean that a few years later I married awesome, wonderful Tamra that's its own separate blessing, still leaves me shaking my head in wonder of his goodness to me. I'm talking here about the sheer and utter dependence on God that I was forced to learn and develop. The months and months when tears were my food and sleep was rare and tormented. When peace could not be found anywhere else but only in Jesus. When I begged for wisdom Seemingly every hour of the day, as though everything depended on it, because it did. I stand here and testify to you that these words are true. God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. It should never have happened, but it did. And somehow, Jesus and me, together, I'm better for it. I still love God, and I know He has good purposes for me. And I want you to hear that you can love God today. Many of you already do. And if you're hearing this today in the house here or online, and this is new, the idea that you could love God, that God gives uh, any kind of care about you, is new. I want you to know that today you can begin to love God. You don't have to have that all figured out. Spoiler alert, none of us do, right? You don't have to have everything right. You don't have to know all of that means. You can just know God loves me and I want to love him back. I want to accept his gift of salvation. I want to say yes to him. I want to start a journey with this God who cares for me so much. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you. If you're here in person after church, come find me. I'd be happy to chat with you. Reach out to me this week. We can get together. If you're online, there's a host right now who's ready to chat with you. You can go to outlookchurch.org yes. You can also do that. We'll follow up with you this week for sure. But I want you to know this idea, God, God loves you. You can love God. God's called you. His call is reaching you right now. If you can hear me, then boom, you're in. God's calling you. And you can choose now to say yes to him. Uh, and he has a purpose for you. What is that purpose? Let's keep going. I'll run out of time here real soon. Uh, for those God foreknew, who is that? That's everybody. There is ain't none of you a surprise to him, okay? He knows, he, knows, he knew you, he saw you coming. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's His purpose, that you and I would be more and more like Jesus, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those He predestined, He called. Those He called, He justified. Those He justified, He also glorified. When I hear that God has called me in you, it it, it reminds me that he has taken the initiative, that he came looking for me. Rob, where are you? Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. He, He came looking for them. He came looking for me. He comes looking for you. He's calling for you. The God of the universe knows and cares about you and is calling for you. And what's his purpose? That you'll just love him and be more like his son, the prototypical and perfect human being. So what shall we say about these wonderful things? It says, if God is for us, who could ever be against us? Since God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? He's already given us the highest and best gift that there is. This king that has adopted us. How will he not also give us all that we need? Who of any consequence can oppose me? he's asking, what of any consequence can really happen to me? See, we live in, like like I've alluded to earlier, theologians call this the already, but the not yet. We live in the already. Yep, we have victory in Jesus. Yes, we're seated with him in heavenly places. and, And yes, we have all the power we need to overcome sin. And yet then every day we're in the trenches overcoming those things, right? Enduring those things. Tears are still shed. Loved ones are lost. Promises are broken. Hate and prejudice still exist. Injustice, abuse, neglect. We live in a world out of order. We're in the already, but also very much the not yet. But my soul, your soul, is secure. And one day, things will be made completely right. And until then, we trust. Until then, we work until then we serve and share and pray your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven amen verse 33 who dares accuse us whom god has chosen for his own in other words if i'm if i'm accepted by him whose rejection should matter to me no one he says for god himself has given us right standing with himself Who then will condemn us? Again, no one. Someone say no one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Again, from verse 1 of this chapter last week, no condemnation. This is so important. We do not have a faith that wags its finger telling us how terrible we are. We have a faith that, that opens its arms to tell us how loved we are. Despite. How terrible we can sometimes be, right? When I read this, I can't help but think of Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, in chapter 50. He's saying something very similar to what Paul says here. And both Isaiah and Paul, you can almost feel them pounding their chest as they, they, they crescendo in this moment. He who vindicates me is near, Isaiah wrote. Who can bring charges against me? Let us face each other. Who is my accuser? He asks. Let him confront me. It is the sovereign Lord who helps me who will condemn me. He who vindicates me is near. In fact, standing right next to me, Isaiah says. And that takes us to our third point, inseparable love. Inseparable love. Here we do reach the crescendo of what is easily one of the most stirring passages of Holy Scripture. Before first service, I was chatting with our worship leader, Jason, the, uh, this morning, and he says, man, you're preaching on Romans 8 again today, that's awesome, you got to work hard to mess that chapter up, <laughs> right? And it is, it's one of the most stirring passages of all of Holy Scripture, and it, right at this moment, we are addressing here the core truth from which every other truth flows, God's love for us. Verse 35, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? Again, bad times, he's equipping us to understand life on earth, right, which will include suffering. Bad times do not indicate a lack of blessing or watchfulness or care from God. He's not forgotten you and he will not neglect you. Verse 36, as the scriptures say, for your sake, quoting Psalm 44, we we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. Certainly Paul experienced this deep persecution and, and abuse for his faith. No, he says, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. So in this light, as we reach this point, The absurdity of worry or fret or fear or discouragement seems really apparent. Most days it does not seem so apparent, right? Worry or discouragement easily enter into my life and in yours. But that's why scripture is so important. In the light of these words, we begin to see those things as the waste of time that they are. Verse 38, and I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, Neither our fears for today or our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be ever able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, what else do we need to hear, right? If nothing can separate me from Christ's love... Christ's love is the most important thing to me. It tells me who I am. It tells me who I can be. Nothing else should be able to touch that. And that's why these truths are so powerfully, are, are such powerful reminders for us. It's kind of like, well, when you put it like that. Well, friends, that's exactly the way God puts it. For you and for me. Nothing and no one stops God from loving us. Amen? We are his children by adoption because of his inseparable love for us. He doesn't always spare us from troubles. Instead, he makes us strong with powerful help. All of that gives us an eager hope, a hope the world is longing for, a hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray about that. God, we thank you for the we thank you for this passage of scripture. We thank you that it exists, that you inspired Paul to write it, and that we get to look at it and hear it and absorb it and meditate on it all these centuries later. It's as relevant, relevant now as the day it was written, because we need it. We need to hear it. We need your eager hope. We need your powerful help. We thank you for your inseparable love for us. And so, Lord, I pray for, for each of us who are listening today that we would take a step toward you. No matter how many steps we've taken away from you, we're only one step from returning to you or turning to you for the first time. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would do that incredible work in each of our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.